2 Peter chapter 2, we've been going through the book of 2 Peter. Remember, growing in grace is Peter's theme. And he wants all of us to be growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as a believer, that's very important. And to do that, though, there's going to be some hindrances, some roadblocks, some people that will actually try to pull you away from that goal. So here in chapter 2, we've been looking at false teachers specifically. And it's very important that we understand who they are, what they're like, and what they do, and what they teach. And all of that is encompassed in what we've covered. So in 2 Peter chapter 2, we've looked at the false teachers' influence, how they affect others. We've, we've looked at their certain demise, that God is going to take care of the false teachers and really all injustices. That even though we struggle right now with the injustices and things don't seem right or fair or people seem to get away with it, God's going to take care of it. And then last week we looked at the false teachers, their character. Because that's really what betrays them. Not necessarily their teaching, but how they live. And we're finishing out chapter 2 now and looking at the false teachers. And it's kind of a summary passage of what we've looked at. But it shows this main thing over and over about the false teachers, and that is this. The false teachers are great counterfeiters. They're counterfeit. What does it mean to be counterfeit or a counterfeitor if you put it upon someone who does that? Well, maybe you've heard of a man by the name of Frank Abengale Jr. He wrote a book in 1980. You might know the title of it because it's called Catch Me If You Can. And back in his early life, when he was just 15 years old, Frank was very good at one thing, and that was being a counterfeit. And so Frank started off, there was family trouble in his life. Of course, that's no excuse, but it drew, drew him or drove him to a life of crime, and he started out by forging checks. First, his own bank checks, where he would write checks that he didn't have money in his account, and uh, he would get money, and then eventually that ran dry, so he turned to others, other people's checks, to try to get even more money. And he, he thought, well, if I look important and older, the bank teller will respect me more. So he decided to dress up as an airline pilot. And once he had the captain's outfit, he's like, wow, I wonder if I could actually get on an airplane. And so he found a Pan and American uh, airline captain's suit. I think he did it just by calling their, you know, pilot line and saying, I misplaced mine, which was, of course, a lie, and he got his. And then he went on uh, to what they call deadhead, which was he never flew with Pan Am because he's afraid someone might recognize him, but he deadheaded on all the other airlines' flights, and it was estimated that he flew over a million miles in this seat right behind the captain and co-pilot on other people's planes completely free, and he would go to all over the world, and uh, he was able to get free hotel, free food, because just charge it. Oh, yeah, charge it to the airline. Just charge it to the airline. And he looked like a pilot, so he got away with it. And there was even times where they would hand over the controls to this very young teenager, because he looked older. And uh, he said that immediately the first thing he did was put in autopilot, because he didn't want to be entrusted with 140 people in a tin can in the air powered by dead dinosaurs, you know, just flying through. So thankfully he did some things right, but he actually went on to be counterfeit in other areas. He was not only a pilot, for a short time he acted as a pediatrician, doctor, 
over other nurses. And thankfully, though, there was enough intern doctors that he was over that they were trying to prove him themselves that he didn't need to know how to be a doctor. He could just let them show off their knowledge, except when one of them came and said, code blue, there's a baby that is blue, and he didn't know what that meant, and he found out very quickly, wait, I'm gambling with people's lives, got out of that. And then he said he went on to be an attorney, and it was in the state of Louisiana that you're able to take the bar exam as many times as you want. So he just took it until he passed, and uh, even though he had no real other qualifications and was an attorney for a while, at least he said he passed on that. And so you look at this guy, and he was finally caught. And then, of course, he works for the FBI now, um, <laughs> trying to catch other people who are fraudulent or counterfeit. But what does it mean to be counterfeit? You're acting as something or someone you are totally not, not at all. And you're trying to deceive others for what? Your own gain and all of that. And what's kind of funny in this man's story is just this year, 2021, a book was released about Frank's life, and it's calling his life a counterfeit, but not in the way you think, because they're saying all the things that you just said you did, all those things I mentioned, they're saying you made those all up, and you actually didn't even do them. So now the counterfeit, who said he was a counterfeit, is now being called even more of a counterfeit, because he didn't actually do all those things. So it's a really interesting story on that. When it comes to our passage today, we're going to see in four different areas how false teachers will come into the church as counterfeits. They're going to be counterfeit in their very substance. They're going to be counterfeit in their speech, what they teach. They're going to be counterfeit in what the, their knowledge, their, what they know. And then when it comes down to it, they're counterfeit in their very person of who they are, their very being, all counterfeit. So if you would, look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. And would you read together with me, verses 17 through the end of the chapter. 2 Peter 2, verse 17, beginning now. These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage." For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they had known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. So false teachers, the great counterfeiters, we see starting in verse 17 that really their very substance, what they give is counterfeit. So verses 17 specifically shows that the false teachers have counterfeit substance, and this is 
answering the question, what do false teachers give? What are they giving out? Look at verse 17. It says, these are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest. In Jude, he actually gives several illustrations of false teachers and, and, and echoes these exact same two phrases, but even adds more. But even in these two, what is the point that Peter's trying to make about these? Well, what is a well? It's, it's really a spring or something that you'd expect to go to and find water. You think of the, the person who's been lost in the desert for days. They've run low on their Pepsi and Twizzlers, right? That's the only snack they had left. They're completely out. Their canteen is dry. And now their skin is cracked and they're parched. And what do they want? Cool, clear water. And they look up and what do they see on the horizon? Amazing. Just a mile away, beautiful palm trees and a little lake full of cool, clear, refreshing water. So they crawl toward it. And amazingly, the thing disappears. And it doesn't take too long, you know, if, if you lose your basic functions, if you don't have enough oxygen, if you don't have enough water, your mind starts doing funny things. But even a clear-headed person can see a mirage, right? A mirage on the horizon of something that looks like, hey, there should be a lake there or something else there. But you get there and what is it? It's empty. There's no substance. And that's what it's saying here about these false teachers. They have wells or springs without water. You, you go there, you said, wait, I thought there was a spring here. Or you put your bucket down to the bottom and it's not a well. What do you call a well without water? A pit, a hole in the ground, right? And what do you call a guy that fills in or is in that well? You call him Phil, right? So there are wells without water, a mirage, really a dry desert, no water. And I like to contrast this to what Christ said multiple times. Look back at John 4. John 4, that you're not going to find your hope, your substance, your satisfaction, true life in these false teachers. And so if any false teacher is pointing you away from Christ and to himself or herself, that's a warning sign here that they are, have no substance. But what does Christ say? Look at John 4. This is the woman at the well, but look specifically at verse 14. John 4, 14 says, But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be a what? Well of water springing up into everlasting life. What is Jesus saying? He has life. He has the true spiritual water. These false teachers are dry as a bone. And even though it may look like there's water there, no, it's found in Jesus and Jesus alone. Turn over to chapter 7, just a few pages over, John 7. This is in one of his spats with the Pharisees and scribes and the people and all of that. But in John 7, verse 38, John 7, let's start in verse 37. And it says, in the last day, that great day of the feast, where and what is happening? This is in Jerusalem. This is when all the Jews and Israelites, the men, had come up for one of the yearly feasts. There's three per year. This one 
is the feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's commemorating all that God did for them in the wilderness. They live in booths or tents, as we call them. And it's on this feast day. And what was happening in the wilderness? Remember, children of Israel multiple times crying out for water. So all the Jewish people would have been well aware of all that history, and this is what's going on right at this time. And so on the last day of that feast, of that remembrance of God taking them through the wilderness, Jesus stood and he cried and he said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And he that believeth on me, as the scriptures have said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Now that, that picture is a little weird. Out of your belly, and if you have a river flowing out, something's wrong, right? You're a fireman and the hose got caught up somewhere, right? That's what it almost looks like. But no, this is talking about spiritually someone who believes in Christ. They have everything. They have the full blessing and everlasting life. They're not looking for it anywhere else. So we have to be warned about these false teachers back in Second Peter because they'll say, yeah, I have water, but there's nothing there. It's actually found in Christ, in Christ alone. And it goes on then in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 17, to say clouds that are carried without, with a tempest. Clouds that are carried with a tempest. What do clouds do? Clouds get up early in the morning and they plot their course on their Google Map GPS and say, this is where I want to go today, right? No, what do clouds do? They go wherever the wind pushes them. They have no say over it. And now it's funny to think that they might, but no, they're, they're just blown about. And what are clouds supposed to do? Well, they give some shade from the sun and we appreciate that. But what do you really want the clouds to do when it's dry and hot and you need that water? You, clouds are supposed to give rain, right? And here the, the picture is, that these false teachers are clouds that don't do what they're supposed to do. They're carried about, and they're not even in control, and they don't even give true rain. And they're carried about with a tempest. In other words, their servants are really slaves, as we'll see in a little bit, of the storm. What does Paul remind believers in Ephesians 4? In Ephesians 4.14, he says, that we henceforth be no more children, Tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. So don't be children. What does it mean to be a child? You know the beautiful thing about child, children? You can get them to believe just about anything, right? And if they have a dad like me that likes to joke around a little bit, what happens? They start questioning, though. Wait, is that really true? Samantha's dad is really great at this too. He can give you historical facts that sound so true and then he'll just change something ever so slightly. And you're like, wait, wait a minute. Did that really happen? And so the idea here is don't be a child who's just going to believe every little thing. Don't be carried about by this wind, but be solidly based on the solid rock. So their substance is wells without water, clouds that are just carried about by the tempest, and then verse 17 ends, and to whom the midst of darkness is reserved forever. What is the mist of darkness? It's something that's gloomy that you can't see, right? What is he describing here? Well, if we look at Matthew, I want you to see Jesus' words on this. Matthew chapter 8. 
because he's talking about eternal punishment for these false teachers. And even though we've looked at this and talked about it, to see Christ's own words, because it's something that's heavy, something that we don't often want to talk about, the judgment that God brings because of sin, the judgment that God brings because of false teaching. Well, notice what Christ himself says. We'll start in Matthew 8, verse 12. We're just going to look at a few verses, and these are sobering, heavy verses. But Christ's words himself. So Matthew 8 and verse 12, Jesus says, But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's talking about judgment for those who have rejected him and his ways. Turn over to Matthew 13, verse 42. Matthew 13, verse 42, just a couple pages over. 1342, he's talking about the tares being separated out from the true wheat, he's taking the weeds out. Verse 40 says, as therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The son of man shall send forth his angels and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire, and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. One last verse, chapter 25 of Matthew. Chapter 25 of Matthew, verse 41, so near the end. Matthew 25, verse 41, Then shall he say, that is God, unto the people, shall say also unto them on the left hand, this is after he separated sheep and goats, believers, unbelievers, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. What is Christ himself saying? He's saying there is eternal, righteous, dark, and fiery judgment for those who reject God. And if we look at even other places, we see that there's even a greater judgment for those false teachers. And that's sobering, but it also should hit us strongly because this is Christ himself saying that this isn't something they can get out of on their own. This is only something Christ can deliver us from. And it should startle us because Does not our own sin condemn us to this same fate? Now, it's reserved for the devil and his angels, but that doesn't mean that it stops God from meeting out the righteous wrath to others who have rejected him. So the the false teachers, they're counterfeit in their substance, what they really give. Secondly, they're counterfeit in their speech, what they really say. Look at verse 18, back in 2 Peter 2. It says, for when they speak. False teachers come and they speak and they love to say things, but what is it about? It's great swelling words of vanity. This great swelling words has the idea of arrogant, of puffed up, of very proud about themselves, but it's of vanity. It's like a balloon, right? You blow and blow and blow, but what's inside? 
a bunch of hot air, right? Nothing of value that you want to save. I mean, if there's helium, we like to suck it out and, you know, do funny voices with that sometimes. But this is more like the balloon that your, your younger brother blew up, and it's full of his spit and hot air. It's vanity. You don't want that stuff, right? And it's blown up until it pops, and the idea is just great and arrogant, but no real substance. Do not the cults do this, you know? I'm right. I have the truth. I have the corner of the angle on truth that no one else knows, or, you know, God just decided not to reveal it. And you need this extra little, this extra big key of truth or nugget that's really going to unlock the, the true or the full mysteries of God or help you level up in the Christian life. You just have to follow my teaching, my way. But it's empty. It doesn't lead to everlasting life. A lot of times, what, what will they do? They add some sort of works, right? Christ after you've done everything that you can do. Or Jesus Christ plus something else. Or they even mess with who God is. You know, they say God is one. We would agree with them, right? But Christ is not God. Well, wait a minute. And so they take something in their logical mind and say Christ can't be God. When in reality, the scriptures clearly state that there is one God. But the, the person of the Father is God, the person of the Holy Spirit is God, and the person of the Son is God. And it's a mystery that we can't comprehend, but you know what I say to that? Praise the Lord, because if we had a God that we could comprehend, I don't think he'd be worth worshiping, right? So our God is far greater than all of that, but that's what the cults would do. They speak with great swelling words of vanity. I'm right, but the truth is empty. And how do they do this? In their speech, they allure, in the next part of verse 18, through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness. What do they go after? It's, it's like this. Why do you start a church? Or why do you go to church? And do you know that even though church, we say church, it can be a good thing, right? But the reasons that you go or you start or the philosophy behind a church can be so very wrong, can it not? And many churches have been started with this idea or question. What does man want? What does man desire? What pleases man? And if you start with that premise of saying, what do people want? What's it going to lead you down? Now, do all those churches, are they pre preaching a false gospel? No, not necessarily. But what do we need to be very careful of? That our focus is not on what man wants or man desires, but on what God wants and what reflects his character. Now, I'm not saying there's, there's not room for different opinions or different ways to do things in church. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you need to be very careful with a church that starts with this idea. What does man want? when it comes to how we do church or the philosophy behind it. And God give us grace. We don't do everything perfectly. We as pastors are still sinful men. We can still be caught up in the fear of man. What do other people think about me or what I'm saying or, or how I'm doing things? That's a struggle that we all have to put right back at God and say, no, my motivation, my desire is to serve the Lord, to do what he wants and to do it humbly and with grace. So they allure, though, through the lusts of the flesh and through much wantonness. That idea of wantonness is just, again, that idea of liberty or license 
really when it comes to immoral sins, sexual sins, that yeah, you can do whatever you want. You can do whatever your flesh tells you to. It's okay. It's your desire. You know, and, and they may even say, now that you're saved, you know, if, if it's something you desire, then do it. But that's going back to our, right, our flesh, our carnal nature. So it's all about what you, it's all about you, how you either can do what you want or how you work to get to heaven. So what does this warn us against? It warns us not just against false teachers, it warns us against ourselves, against our own desires. Is there not a cultural battle raging right now that would say your desires define who you are? The culture says that, right? If you desire it, that's who you are. And to me, that's sad because what is that? That's just saying, well, you're just destined to be like that then. You have no control over your own desires. You can't help it. In a sense, the fallen man, okay, I can agree that's true. But if you're saved, sitting before me tonight or or this morning or listening online, and you have Christ in you and you are a new creature, he wants to change our desires, right? To be aligned with his. He wants to change our thoughts, to renew our minds. He wants us to change our actions to line up with what Christ looks like. And notice then who they target, the end of verse 18, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. I believe what this is really pointing out or talking out is, is either people who have professed, so they may not be, but new babes in Christ or people who have at least professed the name of Christ. And these false teachers come in and try to snatch away, them away. It's almost like Christ as well in his parable of the sower, the seeds that get, it's planted or it seems like it might grow, but no, it's, it's snatched away. I'm not saying here that someone gets saved and then loses their salvation. I'm saying those that are young or immature or children are the ones that false teachers are going to more easily target because their desires are, have not grown in that yet. And so that's what we have to be warned about is even those young ones new babes, new believers in Christ to disciple them in the truth, in the right way. Then verse 19, while they promise them liberty. What's a promise? It's another verbal of their speech. So verse 18, when they speak, verse 19, when they promise, what do they promise them? They promise them liberty. Do you want to be free? Do you want to live in the land of the free and the home of the brave? Amen. Yes, we want liberty, right? But are not some people's definition of liberty quite different than others? (laughs) And we see that in the culture, but it's so true when it comes to our spiritual walk. You are free because you do all of these things. Check off the boxes, you know, do the penance, pray the prayers, give your money. Do these things and I promise you liberty. But what is it in reality? They themselves are servants, and that word servants is really slaves, slaves of corruption. So while they promise one thing, they themselves are, it's like they're bound in chains already to be corrupt. Christ's words again in John chapter 8 show the freedom that only comes through him. John chapter 8 just going to read verses 30 through 36. 
And as he spake these words, many believed on him. John 8, 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, speech, then ye are my then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. But then people reject that, right? Then they answered him, We be Abraham's seed. We were never in bondage to any man. And how sayest thou, ye shall be made free? What was the Jews' response? We're already free. But they don't realize they're actually in bondage. Because then Christ goes on to say, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. What is he saying? If you're the servant of sin, you can, you can look like you might belong in the master's house. But who gets the master's house and all the benefits? Not the servant. It's the one who's truly the son, truly a child of God. So while they promise liberty, they themselves are servants of corruption. In the verse 19, this section ends in 2 Peter 2. For of whom a man is overcome of the same is he bought in bondage. What does it mean to be overcome? It has that simple idea of being vanquished, subdued, or really, in a simple sense, to be made worse. <laughs> if you're overcome, in this sense, you're made worse. And so, of whom a man is overcome, the same as he brought into bondage. So what happens? These false teachers, they go out, they say things that might sound right, but on the inside, they are servants of the own corruption, the judgment that's waiting, the servants of the own sin that they are involved in, and it has overcome them. In other words, that's what controls them. And so then they are enslaved. Do you want to live enslaved in your life? Do you want to live as a servant to sin? That's what the false teachers are doing. And so it, it gives us this warning that even in our speech, we can say one thing, but really we're living a whole different thing. And what do you call a person like that? A hypocrite or counterfeit, right? So the Lord give us grace that we're not like these false teachers, counterfeit in our speech, but we're actually true and right. And, and saying things and living those things that comes and flows out of a life of Christ, of knowing Christ, of having a relationship with him. So that's what Peter then goes on in the next verse. So we've seen there's counterfeit substance. They give false things. They promise things that they can't really give. There's counterfeit speech. They say one thing, but do something else. Thirdly, there's counterfeit knowledge. What do they really know? Look at verse 20. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. So what is it saying there at the beginning? If they have escaped the pollution of the world, what is this talking about? It's talking about a stowaway in the church of God. It's talking about someone who is, is there and, and trying to enjoy all the benefits of being a Christian. Are there benefits of being a believer? Absolutely. Amen. Do you have joy because of what Christ has done in your life? Yeah. Are you thankful that even if there was been sin in the past, that God has forgiven you of that? That doesn't have to control you. 
And you can actually have a life, a victorious life right now. And those of you kids that are growing up, we, I grew up in a Christian family. We have so much to be thankful for that we didn't have all the pollution of the world in our lives. I mean, praise the Lord. There could have been so many wrong choices that I personally could have made in the past that would have a lasting effect. But praise the Lord for those, even in, in Christian families, that have been saved from that. And so it's talking about someone, even someone that grew up in a Christian family, could be the same thing, grew up in church, part of the church, and they've gotten all of those benefits that go along with being in church. You know, you're not polluted or corrupted with the world. But then they actually go back and they're defiled and entangled therein. They we're never really believers. These false teachers are defiled. They're hiding in a safe place, but they're the enemy. It's, a, it's like a spy or a stowaway on the boat. Or, like Woody from Toy Story would say, there's a snake in my boot. Do you want a snake in your boot? Why does the snake go into your boot? Because it's a warm, protective, safe environment until your foot gets in there, right? And then what happens? If it's venomous, it'll try to bite you. And a rattlesnake can take you out. So that's the idea here. They've escaped the pollution. They're looking for a safe place, but they're really going to attack. And it's through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in other words, they know about the gospel. They know about Jesus. They know the possibility of the relationship, but they're not truly saved is the idea throughout here. They've tasted the good things about Christ. And, and four times in this short epistle of 2 Peter, he, he shows the deity of Jesus Christ himself. And here is one of those, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. One other time, it's God and Savior tying though Christ, Jesus himself, to be God. It shows that very clearly. And, and four times in this book, Peter is doing that. And yet these false teachers are rejecting that lordship, that God head over them and doing their own thing, even though they're trying to get the benefits of it. So it's not a saving knowledge, but yet it's a knowledge where they've tasted or they've at least experienced some of. And how do we know that? Because verse, 9, verse 20 goes on to say, they again entangle therein and overcome. This word entangle reminds me of something my mother loves to do. She's big into the fiber arts, and maybe some of you are. She's, she's taken uh, the wool off the sheep, washed it, carded it to get all the fibers of the wool lined up, and then spun it on a spinning wheel. And then what does she do after that? She does, she takes two needles she makes a whole bunch of complicated knots, is what I say. It's called knitting, if you haven't done it before. And she can make something out of that. She also uh, has several looms around the house, like the old-fashioned, you know, weaving that you make fabric. Some of you may not, yeah, you just go to Walmart, and there it is. It comes from China. But there's actually a way you can make your own fabric. And so she has these, these looms, and, and to put one of those together, or to uh, put all of the, what they call the warp, on the loom, it's a whole bunch of individual strings, and each one has to be threaded individually. It's like it's kind of like you know fishing and threading through a hook, except you got to do it like a hundred times. And then it has these things that will lift the string up and down in different orders, so you can make different patterns with it. And then you have the weft, which is in a shuttle, and it's one long string that you shoot back and forth between all the other strings. And so. Uh, Eden actually has in her crib a little uh, purple blanket that my mother made. 
and she wove it on one of her looms, and Eden loves it. She'll wake up each morning and, and snuggle with it and hold her little baby doll and say baby with it. And you look at that, and you don't look at that and say, wow, that's a nice bunch of string, right? No, you say, wow, that's an amazing blanket. And you would do the same thing even with your own clothing. We don't talk about the individual strings. And, and what, what Peter is saying here is when it comes to the false teachers, they may say, no, I'm part of your fabric, but really they are so interwoven into the world, the false teaching, their own flesh, and their own greed. You can't even pull that string out. It's so entwined. They're entangled therein, and they're overcome. And so, what happens then? Well, the latter end is worse than the beginning, a far greater judgment for them, where they knew, they knew the truth, and yet they rejected it. They may have even taught the truth. I know of people who have gotten saved. You maybe it was a Sunday school teacher or someone in the church, led them to the Lord. They got saved, and they found out later that person walked away from everything, turned their back on God, and we'd say that then they were never even truly saved. And then it causes you, wait a minute, question my own salvation. Wait, if that person wasn't saved, yet they led me to the Lord. But remember, it's not based in a person. It's based in Christ and Christ alone and himself. And those that walk away show their true colors, show who they're really like. But Christ calls them out as well. Luke 12, 42 through 49 says, the Lord said, who then is that faithful and wise steward who his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give him their portion of meat in due season? So who's a faithful person? Who's a steward? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. In other words, blessed are those that follow after Christ and stick with it and stay with it and do the master's business. Of a truth, I say unto you that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. So that's the good servant. But then there's the bad servant. But if then that servant say in his heart, my Lord delayeth his coming, he shall, get, he shall begin to beat the men servants and maidens to eat and to drink and to be drunken. So what's the servant doing? I'm going to put off what I know I should do today. I'm not going to live for God today. I'm going to put that off. I'm going to wait. He's not coming back for a while. I'm going to wait and do whatever I want right now. So he beats all the servants. He eats and drinks all the master's food. He gets drunk, implying he has all these parties. He's, he's doing wantonness, what he wants. And then verse 46 says, The Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, will, shall be beaten with many stripes. In other words, those that knew, that lived, that acted like it, but then truly weren't, there's a greater condemnation for them, a greater judgment, a greater warning. And that's what Peter then goes on to say back in 2 Peter 2, verse 21, for it had been better for them not to know the way of righteousness. How can that be true? How can it be better to not even know God and his word? Well, it's better for these because if then after knowing it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. And the reason it would have been better, I believe, is part of the reason is that their punishment would not have been so severe in eternity. 
So this is a warning to all of us who know but reject. That your knowledge is not just a head knowledge. I know about these facts, but it's a relationship with Jesus because of all he's done. And then we end, fourthly, with the counterfeit person. So we've looked at the substance, what they pretend to give. They look at their speech, what they're really saying. We've looked at their knowledge, what they know, what they don't know, really. And then look at their very being. The false teachers are a counterfeit person, who they really are. Look at verse 22. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb. And what is he saying by this? Well, what is a proverb? It's a saying that would be in the common vernacular. Is it always true? Well, a proverb is a general truthism, right? It mostly happens that way. But you could look at some proverbs, like uh, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a... No, you go online and get an airline ticket from Expedia, okay? So, you know, it's a truthism, but you could change it up, right? But what Peter is saying here about these two proverbs specifically is, take it to the bank, these are always true. That something, someone is always going to act according to who they really are. And he, he starts with by quoting Proverbs 26, 11, And he says, the dog is turned to his own vomit again. And in Proverbs, it compares it to a fool returning to his folly. In other words, there was some rescue of that. Some of you have dogs. I grew up with a couple dogs. Dogs in the Old Testament and even the New Testament we're not family members like we look at them today. They were not cute little fluffy things that we would love and adore, that live inside, that we spend who knows how much money on, that we treat sometimes even as our own kids, right? They have their own bed and place and everything inside. It's so soft. And buy them the best dog food, all of that stuff. Oh, no. Dogs in the Old Testament and New Testament were looked down upon. Remember a few things said about dogs. Jezebel had some dogs, and what did they do? They ate her, okay? Not very pretty. But it was prophesied that that's how she would die, and it was a gross way to die, showing how disgusted God was with her. Or you think even the New Testament, there was the beggar, the beggar that had sores. And what did the dog do? Delicious. The dog came and licked those sores. Not really what you want in modern medicine. But what, what happens even today? Your sweet, precious little dog, because I know mine did it too. They eat too much. You put too much food in their bowl. Or they're getting older. Stuff's not working quite right. They throw up. I know it's disgusting, but it's happened to you. If you have a dog, they throw up all over the floor I cannot handle vomit very well at all, okay? I'll just tell you that. Whether it's my kids or a pet, don't do well with it. And when that happens, what do you want? If, you, if it's your child, what would you do? You, you remove them from that area completely. You put them in the bathtub. And you have, you know, a sanitizing, cleaning, you know, getting all the supplies out. You want to get that vomit gone. But with a dog, you don't even have a chance, right? They're right back there lapping it up. And it's gross. And your dog has done that, I know, if you have one. As gross as it is. And why do they do that? Why does a dog do that? Because that's what dogs do. 
No matter what, that's what dogs do. And so even thousands of years later, we've domesticated the dogs. We bred them in all sorts of funny ways. We pay thousands of dollars for them. We dress them up. We give them special food. And yet still, the dog returns to his own vomit. You can't take the dog out of the dog. And don't get me started on cats. Going on to the pigs. So the dog returns to his own vomit again. And the sow that was washed in her wallowing in the mire... Pigs really aren't any better. Now, we like to eat them, but remember in the Old Testament, they were declared unclean, and even Peter himself struggled with this when God let down the curtain full of unclean animals, saying, no, Lord, I would never touch or go near those. And what do we know about pigs? Well, I know some, of, some people even have pigs as pets, and they would argue they're, they're clean. But let me tell you, pigs are nasty as well. So pigs will eat absolutely anything, and I mean anything, and everything, we would take our deer, deer carcasses after hunting season and just say those disappeared. And so pigs, what do they do? If you clean them up, you dress them up, you put a nice bow on them, they still want to go wallow in the mud because it feels good, it's cool. Pigs do what pigs do. And so the question then comes to, who are you really? Are you a dog? Are you a pig? I know even saying that out loud is an insult. We would even say that today. We even still use those terms as insults today. So what needs to happen for a dog not to be a dog anymore? What needs to happen for a pig not to be a pig anymore? You can eat them. I don't know about you, but I haven't found a way. But you know, when it comes to our own walk and spiritual life, what does God say about those who believe. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.17. There's many places we could go, but I love how Paul states it here. 2 Corinthians 5.17. It's a very familiar verse. You know it. But I want you to see it. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. It says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, any person in Christ, that means you've believed on him, he is a new creature. The idea there is new creation. So what has God done? He's taken us as dogs and pigs, and he's actually made us into sheep. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen that. I sure haven't, but that would be crazy. You know, we'd say that's a magic trick is what we'd say. But no, this is the spiritual reality. He's actually made us a new creature because of that, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Do sheep, what do sheep do? Do they act like dogs? No, sheep aren't dogs. Do they act like pigs? No, sheep aren't pigs. What are sheep? Sheep are sheep. And what do sheep do? Well, what are sheep supposed to do? We're going to end here in John chapter 10. John chapter 10. There's a lot here we could look at, but we're going to start in verse 26 of John 10. This is the Good Shepherd passage. There's so much here. John 10, 26. Notice the belief aspect. It's what makes you a sheep or not. Because Jesus says, But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they do what? They follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, 
and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them to me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. So you're going to come down to it. Here's the main question that Peter's getting at. I know it sounds weird to say it this way. Are you a pig or are you a sheep? Are you a dog or are you a sheep? And what, what, what is he really saying? Has Christ made you a new creature? Then that's who you are. That's who you should live like. And that's who you should follow after. Don't be a counterfeit. Yesterday, I finally fixed one of the lawnmowers I had lying around that I needed to get rid of. I needed to sell it. It was a stuck carburetor. The throttle was stuck wide open. So adjusting the governor did nothing. It still revved way too high until I took it apart, sprayed it out, got carb cleaner in my eyes. Then I put on my safety glasses. And I flushed my eyes out first. Thankfully, I can still see. And through all of that, I finally got a good running lawnmower that I could post you know, on Craigslist and, and Facebook Marketplace. And thankfully, it sold quickly, which means maybe I posted it for too low. But that's okay. The guy came. And what did he want to do? He wanted to try it out, make sure it worked, all of that. And then he handed me cash. And he paid me in dollar, and not in one dollar bills. It was a little more than that. But he paid me with bills. And I took those and I accepted them as real. Because they looked real. How do you tell, though, if those bills are real or counterfeit? Well, you've seen people at the store, they use those pins, you know, they mark it. And that's to check if there's no starch in the paper because a lot of paper has starch in it and so that will react and do a different color but there are certain people like bank tellers or uh, accountants or whoever works you know directly with money the physical money a lot of times how do they know when something's counterfeit how do they know what what do they focus on do they go on or even frank abigail do, do they does he spend a lot of time looking at fake or false ones no actually not what do they do they spend their time just dealing with the real thing. They know what it looks like. They know what it smells like. I don't know if they know what it tastes like. They know what it feels like. All of those things are indicators of what a real dollar bill is and looks like. So what happens when they come across a counterfeit bill? It's not that they've been studying really or even looking at a counterfeit bill. They just come across and say, wait a minute. It's just a little bit off. You know, the ink doesn't quite line up or the paper doesn't feel quite right or something's misprinted ever so slightly and they know it's counterfeit. And why do they know it's counterfeit? They know it's counterfeit because they dealt with the real thing so much. And here's what it comes down to. If, if you don't want to be counterfeit in what you give others, if you don't want to be counterfeit in your speech, if you don't want to be counterfeit in your knowledge or even counterfeit in who you really are, you don't have to go study false teachers. You don't have to go out and try to figure out all the false teachings. What do you need to do? You need to study what is true, what is the real deal, where life is at, and who is that? That's Jesus Christ. So if we focus on Jesus and who he is and what he has taught and what he says, and that's our heart desire and what we're going after, and if, if he is in us and has transformed us into a new creation, if that's what we're focused on, then when, when these false teachers start coming up or swirling around, we're going to say, wait a minute, 
doesn't feel quite right, doesn't look quite right, doesn't sound quite right. Is that counterfeit? And those are appropriate questions to ask in your own heart. So studying this, the admonition really is pursue Christ. Get to know Christ. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. Pursue him.